there are a lot of things that make Christians seem sort of strange to the watching world. Uh, if you've been in church your whole life, you may not realize uh, how peculiar and odd we can probably look to those watching from the outside. Uh, but one of the weirder things that I think, as you just try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's, who just would walk in on a gathering of the church, I think it's the fact that we sing. And we sing together pretty much every time we're together. We, we sing loud and we sing often and we do this together as adults and with children, yes. But that, and, and we're not... We're not trained singers, and that's painfully obvious, uh, depending on where you sit. Um, Eric sits behind me, but uh, <laughs> Lana is a good buffer, so uh, <laughs> uh, no. Now, this is just not something people do on a regular basis um, outside of the context of the church. Yeah, maybe you, you sing a national anthem at a sporting event, and so everybody joins in, or at a party, you sing, a, you know, have a rendition of Happy Birthday. Probably the closest thing would be a concert where everybody knows the words and everybody's singing it out. But even then, you're there. That's a very different purpose. You're there primarily to be entertained by someone else singing. That's the clear purpose. But where can you go to find more than just a couple short minutes of organized singing except in a church service? It's, it's strange. Think about it. Why do we as Christians do this weird thing? Why do we sing together when we gather? One writer I read this week, he answers this by saying that our singing reflects, quote, a familiar pattern in the Bible. God saves and His people sing. We sing because He saves. This is, this is it. Isaiah 51.11 uh, puts it in a succinct form when out of context, I understand, but the, the ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. That's, that's the familiar beat of the Bible. That's the pattern that we see over and over again. And the Bible is full of songs in response to God's saving acts. You, you look in the Old Testament, there are songs of Moses and songs of Miriam and Deborah and, and uh, Barak and David and Hannah singing in response to God's deliverance. In the New Testament, there are hymns to Christ in John's Gospel, in, in, in Romans, in Philippians, in Colossians, in First and Second Timothy, in Hebrews. There are doxologies throughout the Bible. In, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, you have songs in, in chapter 1, and 4, 5, 7, 11, 14, 15. You have the, the, the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. It's, it's this collection of songs to, see, to be sung to the Lord. And so... Our text today, we're, we're, we're looking at one of those songs, one of those songs that comes in response to God's saving grace and kindness. We're, we're, we're looking at some of these songs, these biblical songs associated with Advent as we're anticipating uh, Christmas celebration. We're, we're these songs that are, that are uh, connected with Christ coming into the world. And so we first looked at that prophetic song in Isaiah chapter 9, that Old Testament song. Now we're in, in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And these two chapters are full of singing. Full of singing. It's almost like a, a musical. You have these divinely inspired solos and these voices harmonizing together in, in, in celebration of the visitation of God and the birth of His Son. 
And so last week we looked at Mary's Magnificat. The, the just means magnify in Latin. And, and today we're looking at uh, Zechariah's Benedictus. It's a, it's a, it's a Latin word for, for blessed. And so Paul read verses 5 to 25 a moment ago. And we're, we'll pick up there. And so, there, so again, you've had this 400 years of silence. We talked about this last week. And, and these, this silence is broken by God when Gabriel shows up in the temple and, and makes this huge announcement to Zechariah. This is, this is a massive moment in redemptive history. But as we saw, as Paul read, instead of believing God's, God's uh, this, this good news that Gabriel announces from the Lord... He, in unbelief, he asked for a sign so that he can be sure that this message is legit. And, and he gets a sign, but it's not quite the kind he's looking for. And so he's, he's made mute by God. And, and that does, that's kind of a twofold sign. One, it addresses his unbelief. But also, it hides from everybody outside that's wondering and what's going on in there. It hides from them what's actually happened in the temple from that waiting crowd and so he comes out the people realize something happened in there and i'm i'm sure that's pretty clear and and so he's taken a long time and 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 i'm sure he looks a little frazzled by all this and so he tries to communicate what's taking place inside the temple but he's unsuccessful in that i mean you would have to be a a world class in charades to be able to explain that one uh, without without talking, if you don't you know know sign language, and and so he goes home. Elizabeth conceives, keeps her pregnancy hidden for five months, and now we pick up the story. And so look at back in Luke chapter one, starting in verse fifty seven, we get to the birth of John here. And so we we looked at the, this interlude between verse twenty five and fifty seven last week, when this is where Mary comes uh, to visit in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She stays there with Elizabeth and and Zechariah until John is born. And so verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. So just imagine the scene for a moment where the setting is a small rural village in the hill country outside of Jerusalem. And, and, and in this small rural area, in this time, a birth is a big deal. It's a community event. And, and that's evident in the text. So, so Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives, they show up to celebrate. They're, they're, they're happy for her. But they have no clue as to the true uniqueness of this child. They don't know yet. And so they anticipate that this child, the firstborn son of Zechariah, after you know, thinking they would never be able to have children, they, they, they assume he's going to be called Zechariah. And so named after his father, carry on that name. That was the common custom. And, and so they've already picked out a name for the child. He's Zechariah Jr., ZJ for short, I'm sure. Um, so verse 59, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. That's what everybody would have done. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. John? <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, And so suddenly there's this mood change, and, and it goes from just this rejoicing together to mildly contentious as, as they sort of push back against Elizabeth and her pick of a name here and so they said to her verse 61 none of your relatives is called by this name 
I mean, they could be thinking, Mary, you just had a baby, or Elizabeth, you just had a baby. You're probably a little loopy from all of this. And so let's go to Zechariah. He'll straighten this out. So, um, but since, since Zechariah can't speak because of divine discipline, and apparently he might not have been able to hear either because they're making signs to him as well. There's this other game of charades that breaks out here. And verse 62, And they made signs to his father, to John's father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now tell me this wouldn't have been entertaining to watch. Again, but in my imagination. But Zechariah, he responds immediately. And he responds emphatically. Verse 63, And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, I think in all caps, His name is John. John. It means the Lord provides, or, or even the Lord shows mercy. And then the text says, and they all wondered. Now it only gets more bizarre for those that are watching, because when Zechariah writes that down, the, the divine discipline comes to an end, and his voice is suddenly restored. So he's not been able to talk, and now he speaks, and immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, at that point, Luke says there's this other kind of dramatic uh, change in the mood. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. I bet it did. I mean, remember, this, this began with predictable, appropriate rejoicing with the birth, of course. Now, everyone's petrified. They're, 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 they're full of fear. They're wondering what is up with this child. And so this, is, this has been no ordinary visit. This is, this, I, I don't think my visit to see you in the hospital will be quite this exciting. I hope not. Um, but uh, this is not, I've had a lot of hospital visits after newborns. But th- this, is, this has been no ordinary visit to celebrate with a mother and a father in the birth of a child. This is no ordinary birth. This is no ordinary child. And so they suddenly realize that God is in this. God is at work. He's orchestrating all of this. And so there, there's fear and, 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 the, and the news begins to spread. Verse 65, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea and that rural area, it spreads fast. And all who heard them, these things, laid them up in their hearts. They're pondering these things. And then this provokes this question. What then will this child be? What will this child be? And the answer to that question is provided for us in the song that follows. And so Zechariah now is going to break out in this divinely inspired solo. The man hasn't spoken for nine months. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that when he finally has his voice restored, he's got something to say. (laughs) And, and what are his first words going to be? It's not, whew, I'm glad I can talk again, or, or some word of complaint or something like that. Like probably I could see myself going that direction. But no, his first words out of his mouth, they're praise. He burst into song, blessing God. And the whole song, it's just, it's just two sentences in, in Greek. This, this man hardly stops to take a breath as he's singing the song. It's like there's this volcanic eruption of praise to God. This, this, 
this faith and the joy that's been created by God in him as he's been contemplating that, that word from God through the angel, the, the, the life and the faith and the joy that's been cultivated by God in him as he's been considering the promises of God. It all comes pouring out in this passionate praise of God. And, and this song, it's a, like we talked about last week, it's another, it's another showstopper, like Mary's song. It's, it, it just brings the action to a halt. All this exciting narrative and all those little juicy details that Luke gives us now. All the attention is on the words of this song and the one to whom the song is being sung. And so this isn't, this isn't a musical like Les Mis, no offense, Lana. This isn't, this isn't Hamilton. This is Zechariah's Benedictus. And, and it is a showstopper. This is a celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God. And the unique role that Zechariah's own son will have in preparing the way of the Lord. I know you, you're probably tired. Out. Just stand with me as we read this song. Let's stretch a little bit and hear the word of the Lord. And in this song, we won't sing it. We'll just read it. And um, but this is this is this is our song. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse sixty-seven. He begins to sing and prophesy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever, brothers and sisters. Amen. You can be seated. What we see, and what I want to draw out of this song, are just just four reasons. We get closer in in this celebration, this time of Advent, and moving toward the celebration of Christ's incarnation. Just four reasons to praise God for the coming of Christ. Four reasons that our hearts, our voices, yes, can, can, should bless the Lord as we consider the fact that Emmanuel has come. And so the first one, just in the first two verses of this song, is that, that, this, that God has visited and redeemed us. God has visited and redeemed us. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. In the coming of Christ, God has visited His people. Now here in the South, we say visit. We kind of picture, you know, sitting on the front porch and 
in a rocking chair, relaxing conversation with a friend over some sweet tea, that kind of thing. That's, 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 a, that's a nice visit. That's what we think. But that's not the divine visitation like this. That's not what this is talking about. In Scripture, God's visitation can be a good thing or it can be a terrifying thing. And so some, often in the Old Testament, you read about God visiting His enemies uh, with judgment. The rebels for destruction, He visits them. But, but this idea of divine visitation is also used of God visiting for the purpose of intervention, rescue, God intervening to come to His people's deliverance. So like in the book of Exodus, God visits the Israelites in Egypt. That's the language, to deliver them from bondage and oppression. In Ruth chapter 1, that, that, that God visits His people by putting an end to the, fam, to the famine and providing bread for his, his people. And so Zechariah, he's drawing on the language of the Old Testament throughout this song. I mean, this, lang, this, chap, uh, this song excuse me, has over 30, maybe as many as 50 references, direct or allusions to Old Testament passages. So it's, it's just dripping. But he's, he's drawing on that language of the Old Testament and saying a new exodus is underway. A new visitation from God to intervene for the rescue of His people. And again, there's been 400 years of silence. Then all of a sudden, in these opening chapters, God's speaking again. And God is revealing that the crux of His redemptive plan is at hand. Emmanuel, God has come. God has visited His people. At Christmas, we're celebrating this truth that God Himself has come. He's visited us. The Creator entered His creation. He stepped into time and space. He, he, he is the eternal, the eternal Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're recognizing. C.S. Lewis famously, he, he referred to earth as the visited planet. planet. That's, it's so profound that God has visited us. This is the mystery of the incarnation. The baby in Mary's womb is the very visitation of God. A visitation like no other in a redemptive history. This isn't an angel of the Lord showing up. This is God himself coming in human form. And so in the coming of Christ, we, he's visited his people. But also he's, he's redeemed his people. Now, now the redemption Zechariah has in mind, probably at the forefront of his mind, and I don't think he fully understands all that he's singing here. I don't mean that he's unconscious and just, you know, the Holy Spirit singing through him. But I, I mean, there, there are words that I don't, I don't know to what extent he, he understood the full significance of them. But he has in mind, no doubt, some sense of, of national deliverance for Israel. And, un, and rightly so. Deliverance from those enemy nations and powers. Mary, we talked about this last week. And we talked about this with Isaiah 9. This is, this is all connected to Christ. There's, there's no doubt that those neighbors, those relatives that were there for, for celebrating this birth, as, as Zechariah bust out in this song, that's what they're thinking of. They're thinking, they're thinking liberation from this oppressive Roman Empire. Yes. And Christ will be the one who brings that to pass. He will bring political salvation when He comes again. And Jesus will return and defeat Israel's enemies and establish His kingdom rule over the earth. But as we'll see in this song, this song is ultimately, it's a song sung about a rescue from a much more serious predicament than Roman occupation. It's, it's our sin. As you read on in this song, you come to where we read just a moment ago, verse 77, and you find that, that ultimate redemption is of some, something far more profound than freedom from political oppression. 
It's about freedom from the bondage and slavery and guilt of sin, forgiveness of sins. And, the, and, and with this coming of Christ, we have redemption even from this, redemption from sin now. And yes, glory, because when Christ returns, we'll have redemption from suffering and injustice and oppression to come. And so now that brings us to the question, how has God visited? How has he redeemed us? And the answer is verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That doesn't mean he raised up a musical instrument, a trombone or something like that for us. That's not, that's not the horn. The horn, it, it's, it's talking about the horn of an ox. This is an Old Testament, a common symbol in the Old Testament. It's a symbol of strength, of power. I mean, that, that wild ox has two deadly weapons on, mounted on its head, given by God. And, 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 and one powerful thrust of that head just spells the end of whatever, whoever's attacking him. You've seen probably those videos of like the water buffalo in Africa or something and some lion will come in and try to attack one of the young ones and that thing will just, you know, toss that lion like 15 feet in the air. And uh, that's, that's the kind of the image you get. And, and so all of this animal strength and power, they're concentrated in the, in the tip of that horn. And Zechariah says, the coming Messiah is this horn of strength. That's a biblical Old Testament imagery. Horn of strength and power and salvation. He will be a mighty Savior. Mighty Savior. He will conquer everything that could ever stand in the way of our salvation. Nothing can stop Him. What great news for us, who, again, we see this on this side of the cross and resurrection, not even sin, death, Satan himself can stop God's saving purposes. He defeats it all. And, that, and that's the thing in these opening words of this song, in this kind of first stanza of this song, what becomes clear and throughout the song is that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. This is why Zechariah is blessing the Lord God of Israel as he sings these words. I mean, what we celebrate at Christmas, it's not, it's not our efforts to climb up to God, to meet Him part way. What we celebrate is not wise men who, you know, are trying to figure out how to get to Jesus. I've heard sermons preached like that. What we celebrate is the fact that God came to us. God sent His Son to save sinners. It's His initiative. We, don't, we didn't go searching for Him. He came and visited us. He came to us. He saw our helpless condition. He took pity on us. He, he came down to meet the enormous need of our redemption in the person of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And apart from God's initiative... It, we would, it would be impossible for us to be saved. We have no hope for salvation because of our sin apart from divine visitation and redemption. It must come from above. It must come from God himself. It must come from God alone. And so th- this, is, this, is, this speaks to us. We, we, we don't make a contribution to our redemption uh, by religious performance or obedience or commitments or sacrifices or uh, you know surrender, morality, good deeds. That's not it. We are redeemed one and one way only given the seriousness of our sin. And that's that we are redeemed because God visited us in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so we can't do anything to earn it. We can't work for it. Christ has done it all through his death in our place and his resurrection. All we do is receive it by faith. And so Zechariah's song begins, 
keeps focusing on what God has done to save his people. And it's, it centers on, his, on Jesus Christ and his, his coming. And so visiting us, redeeming us by raising up this mighty Savior. And this mighty Savior, this horn of salvation, powerful, strong, can't be stopped Savior, is still a baby in Mary's womb as he's singing this. <laughs> what, a, what a powerful image. Second reason we have to praise the Lord for the coming of Christ is that God has kept his promises. He's kept his promises. And you see this language very clearly in here. Verses 69 to 73. Zechariah praises God for keeping these ancient promises concerning the Messiah. And so you see in verse 69, he speaks of the the promise to David. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So a thousand years before Zechariah, God made a covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, a promise that one of David's descendants would sit on his throne forever. And Zechariah sees the coming, the coming birth of Jesus Christ in connection with that, that promise. And he says, this child is David's heir. He's the one. You remember what the angel told Mary in, earlier in chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. He said about uh, her son, Jesus He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is is being fulfilled. It's fulfilled. The coming of Christ also fulfilled God's promises made through the Old Testament prophets. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This redemption, this rest rescue and so for centuries God's been speaking through his prophets about the coming Messiah and hundreds of prophecies who he would be what he would be like where he'd be born you know what he would what he was coming to do all of these prophecies passages like Isaiah 7 a virgin will can will give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel God with us passages like Isaiah 9 and he will be, he will be uh, the, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, passage from Ezekiel, the promise is coming, Shepherd King. Micah 5, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So Jesus fulfills what the prophets predicted. And notice Zechariah says, God spoke by the mouth, singular, of the prophets, plural. I think that's interesting. All those prophets over many years, many centuries, in many different areas, they're, they're speaking, as it were, with one voice. Because it's, it's not just their thoughts, their ideas. They're together as a, as, a, as a collective unit. They are God's mouthpiece to proclaim His plan to His people. They're prophesying concerning God's plan that centers upon God's Son. And so now Zechariah says, God is fulfilling his ancient prophecies through promises and through the prophets, and he's fulfilling that in Christ. And then in verse 72 and 73, Zechariah goes back even further in in history. He goes back to the covenant promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. A promise to make a great nation of him. He promised to give his people the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he promised to bless all of the families of the earth through him. And so what's, what's God doing in Christ? And this is what the text says. It was to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. 
And so during, Jesus talked about this during his own oath ministry. When, when the Jews and the Jewish leaders were pushing back against him and challenging him and arguing with him, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad, John eight fifty six. So, so this is the point. God, God is keeping his promises in the coming of Christ. So the promises to, to David were a thousand years before Zechariah. The promises to Abraham were a thousand years before David. And Zechariah, though, he sees Mary's child. He sees this child in the womb as connected to the fulfillment of these ancient promises that God has made. And Jesus would later say to religious leaders in his own day, Again, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They're speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, it's about me. So in the coming of Christ, we have, we have this tremendous evidence that God keeps his promises. Paul alluded to this a moment ago. He's trustworthy. No promise he's ever made will fail to come to pass. What, what great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. I, I just To make some application and for you today, think, think of the things that God has promised. He's promised to take care of the sparrows, and he says that he will take care of you. I don't know what, what, what concerns are weighing upon you today, but that's a promise from God. You will not be tempted to be on what you can hand, beyond what you can handle, but he will always provide a way of escape. God will hear you. He will answer you when you pray to him. He will forgive your sins if you confess them. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. If you lack wisdom, ask God and He will give it to you. God is faithful. He will strengthen you, protect you from the evil one. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He he will work all things together for your good. His word will not return void. (coughs) He will judge the world in righteousness. He, He will come again for His own. The dead in Christ will be raised. I mean, God's promises are certain. Are you trusting them? Are you, are you believing them? Are you resting in them? And, and the reason we can be certain of them, the reason that we can have confidence even today as believers and say, yes, those, those words are true, I can stake my life on them, is because the fulfillment of God's promises centers on Christ. Centers on Christ who is, who is in us. And so the song encourages us to, to put our trust completely in the promising, the promise-keeping God by looking to Christ. He will never fail us. He will never fail us. I mean, I, mean, I, I know our, I'm not trying to compare our situation to Israel's, and, and this is Luke 1, is this, it's almost like an Old Testament passage. There's still, a, there's still this anticipation of Christ's first coming, and, but there, there are some commonalities to where we sit today, even on this side of the cross, is, is we're still waiting for this, not the first advent, but the second advent. Christ to come again. And he's promised. He's promised to raise us from the grave and transform our bodies to be like his. He's promised to make all things new. He's promised to consummate his kingdom. He's promised to usher in a new heavens, a new earth where, where, where there's no more sin or sickness or sorrow or death. He's promised to dwell with us forever and we will dwell with him. But it's been a long time since those promises were made. And, and in that sense, we are like Israel of all. We're waiting. And, and I know the, the world is dark. It seems to be getting darker. And it's been a long time since God promised Christ's return. And, and we may be tempted to wonder, is it really going to happen? But we can look back at Zechariah's song and be encouraged by it. 
can look back and how God has kept his promises in the past. Christ has come in fulfillment of those ancient promises and we can be confident that he will keep the promises that he's made that still have not yet been fulfilled. No matter how difficult life gets today, we can trust him. We can trust him. He will keep us. He will preserve us. He will sustain us by his grace. He is a promise-keeping God. And Zechariah praises God for that. And we should too. So God has visited and redeemed us in the coming of Christ. God has kept his promises third. And quickly, God has rescued us to serve him. I'm just going to be brief here. Zechariah sings of God rescuing us from our enemies, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verses 74 and 75. And it's for this purpose that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Again, Israel's been under the thumb of all kinds of foreign powers. At the time, it's Roman. And, and, and Zechariah understands that the coming of the Messiah to be connected with the rescue from those, those earthly powers, those earthly enemies, deliverance from those who oppress. And, and again, there's going to be fulfillment of that in the second coming. But the truth Zechariah artic- articulates here, filled with the Spirit again, goes beyond just rescue from those earthly enemies. Again, our greatest need isn't political, it's, it's spiritual. Our most fundamental enemy is sin and death and the results, of that, the results from that. And, and this is, this is and, and Christ is the one, Zechariah sings, who, who rescues us from our enemies. And what, for what purpose? Verse 74, that we might serve him without fear. And this is what I think makes it clear that he, there's more than military or political deliverance here. It's our greatest enemy, sin, death, the devil, that we have to be rescued from in order to serve the Lord, in order to be in his presence without fear, but in holiness and righteousness. We need, we need more than political deliverance. Through Christ, though, and, and what he will provide, we have now confidence and boldness before God. We can stand before him without fear. That's the good news of the gospel. We can draw near to God and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We can, we can serve him. What a, what a blessing and a privilege as new creations by God's grace. We can serve the Lord and we, we, can, we can serve him without fear. What a, what a gift. And holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So we've been saved, redeemed, rescued to serve God in the newness of spirit. Um, and the order of that is critical. You, you've been rescued to serve God. It's not the other way around. We don't serve God so that we might be rescued from by Him. We're, we're saved by grace through the merits of Jesus Christ. Not saved by works, but saved for good works, Paul tells us. All right, last. I want to move to the, the last and significant part of this song God has prepared, God, excuse me, God, so first God has visited and redeemed us. Second, God has kept his promises to us. This is all reasons we have to praise the Lord for the coming of Christ. Third, God has rescued us to serve him. And then last, God has provided for our greatest needs. Provided for our greatest needs. Verse 76, Zechariah finally turns his attention to his own son. Um, he, he's, he's, he's thinking of John now. And, and, and just imagine the scene beginning there in verse 76 as John begins to sing of his own son's birth. Just try to imagine the depth of emotion of, of this man, this father that he feels in his heart over all that's taken place over the last nine months. 
with his, this awareness of, of what is underway now in this redemptive story of God and how he and Elizabeth are, are fitting into it and the part they're playing in the birth of their son, John, just, just try to imagine. It's difficult for me to imagine giving his awareness of God's purpose and his affection for his son that, that he could sing these words without his voice breaking up a little. Um, but he says in verse 76, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so John's going to be where the last and the greatest of those old covenant prophets that are, that are the, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah the supportive role. He's not the one, but he's the one preparing the way for the one. Preparing a people for the coming of Messiah. And then Zechariah praises God for providing through Christ what we need more than anything else. What we need more than anything else. Again, most people in Israel at that time, they, they didn't really understand what their greatest needs were. Again, they, they were, it was horrible oppression. What they were living with, the injustice that they faced every day from Rome. It was awful. It was awful. And, and they thought that was their most pressing need. And it was an enormous need. But what they, they, they were oblivious to the, their greatest ultimate need, which was their own sin and their need for forgiveness. They, 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 were, they were oblivious to the darkness that they were walking in. They didn't understand that they were at enmity with God, even though they were God's people. So they weren't perce- perceiving the, the seriousness of their sin and, the, and their condition. So they didn't understand their true need. And so John, though, is this forerunner to Jesus. He's this herald of salvation. What does it say? He's, he, he's pointing to their real needs. He would give knowledge of salvation to his people. And he tells us three things that God has provided through Christ. And this is going to be what John is pointing to. And the first one is forgiveness. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is what we really need. Again, injustice everywhere. Needed to be freed from a bondage and oppression. Absolutely. But they had this infinitely greater need. Forgiveness. And John in his ministry made clear that he's not the source of forgiveness. No, what what does he do? He points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, Jesus is the one. Jesus is a sacrificial lamb that cleanses us from the stain of our guilt. Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So God in the coming of Messiah, he, he forgives. Second need, second thing we have that God has provided in Christ is light. The coming of the Messiah, Zechariah says, is going to be like the, the rising of the sun to people who are in spiritual darkness. Verse 78. Again, all this, this, this coming of, of John, this coming of the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, it's because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. I mean, that's an amazing picture there, this language of, of sitting in darkness. Uh, and, and waiting for that light. I, I think of uh, when we've gone on these hunting trips on Osaba Island, and, and it's a little eerie at first because they just basically drop you off in the early hours of the morning, and you just drop you off on this road and say, all right, just go into the woods. And so it's pitch black, and you just stagger in there and trying to feel your way along and go in a couple hundred yards and just sit. It's dark. 
and you hear noises and you don't know what's around you and then that light begins to come and like, ah, I can can see where I'm at and is there security in that? And I, that's the image I get. But this is this is this image of the sun rising and it's an Old Testament image, Malachi 4, to the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And so Zechariah is picturing our condition before Christ. We're, we're, we're trapped in spiritual darkness, spiritual ignorance, blinded to the truth. You, you were stumbling in the darkness, waiting for the light to rise, and he's connecting this with Jesus and says, the sun is rising. The sun is rising. Sun, Christ gives light, light of salvation that leads us out of the darkness. Out of darkness and from sitting in the fear and the shadow of death. I was talking with Janelle on Wednesday, I think, after you texted me, Howard, and she was clearly declining rapidly and went over and my I've been meditating upon this passage and that, that, that phrase there just jumped out and I prayed with her, encouraged her, just that, that in Christ we have this light that's been given to us. Light in the, those who, who sit in the shadow of death. And uh, what 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 wonderful thing it is that God in His mercy gives us light. The last thing that He has provided, He says, is peace. And verse seventy nine, He says that Christ has come to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, the biblical idea of peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's it's that shalom. It's the this wholeness. This this. Uh, that come total well-being that comes in being with in right relationship with God. That's what he's talking about. That sin has destroyed that. Sin has wreaked havoc on that. We're alienated from God because of our sins. But that that peace, that shalom, is what God has provided in Christ that we could be right with Him again, and it's only found in Christ. So that, what what he's pointing to though is is all of our greatest needs are met in Christ. If I could just, if I've lost you in the weeds, let me just bring you out for just a moment. I know we live in a, we live in a world that's terribly confused about what our greatest needs are. Turn on the TV right now, look on social media, and, and everybody's telling you the, the greatest need we have is to get so-and-so into office, so-and-so out of office, so-and-so, whatever. Pass this law, you know, we need this regulation, we need whatever it is. This is the greatest need. It's political, it's, it's something like that. Or, or advertising this year is telling us, no, the thing you need most is the next gadget. You need the newest, the best, the, uh, the better, uh, newest iPhone with like 18 cameras on and all that stuff. That's, if you just have that, your life's going to be better. So much better. And, 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 and what we're reminded here, this, this passage pulls us out of, the, out of that fog. And we say, no, the, the things that I need most are forgiveness and light and peace. And for those of us who are in Christ, we say, we have it in Christ. We have it. We have it. Not because we deserve it. Not because we earned it. This whole passage is saying, no, it comes from above. It's salvation is of the Lord. It's God's grace. And that, that phrase that, that lingers, and I want lingering in your heart, it's, it's because of the tender mercy of God. It's because of His tender mercy. The reason you're sitting here today and not somewhere else, the reason you have this hope and, 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 and not sitting in darkness and without hope, it's because of the tender mercy of God. That's it. That's it. This is why we as Christians sing. This is why we're such weird people. Some of us are weirder than others. But we sing because we, we've experienced this. We've been saved. And it's by that 
tender mercy of God. And it's, it's a mercy that we should just be in awe of. We, there's what, it was, uh, got a little illustration of this on Thursday, sitting there, I'm seeing, uh, um, and mercy's adoption. And I had, I, I was, they were so packed in that little room and I'm just standing in the hallway, but I can see mercy's face. Every time, there, you know, the lawyer's reading off all this legalese that he has to, his boilerplate stuff, and it's very technical language. Every time she, he would say her name, though, she would go, <gasps> and she would just cover her mouth with this shock and surprise, and it was this joy on her face. She didn't know what was happening, uh, but... I, I, and, and apparently this is what she did every, every time last Sunday when I said mercy, and I said it probably a hundred times last week. Tim was not excited because uh, she, was, she was wiggling all over the place. But, so let me say it a few more times this morning for you, Tim. <laughs> uh, but we should, we should react the same way when we hear that word, shouldn't we? I mean, it's mercy. What a, what, a, what a gift. The joy, the wonder, the surprise of it should never grow old to us. And I... I pray that we would resolve to contemplate that this, this, over the next couple weeks here as we celebrate as church, as families. Um, it's a, Christmas is an expression of the tender mercy of God. Um, let's pray together. Lord, we, we hear these words and, and we hear this song and it, it makes us want to sing. I, I hope that it does. I pray that this song is, is our song. I, there may be some today who, who this isn't their song because they haven't experienced that mercy from you. Uh, I pray that today might be that day of salvation. They would, be, they, would, they would find forgiveness and light and peace with you, God, through Jesus Christ. And so if there's anyone today here who, who can't sing this song, they can't own these words, Father, uh, I pray that they would look to Christ today and be saved and trust in him. But for us who are, who are of the redeemed, Lord, by your mercy and your mercy alone, we, we want to sing and we want to lift all praises to you and say, Lord, glory indeed is to you in the highest. This is not, it's not us, it's, it's you. And so we, we exalt you now and we bless you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.